Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Hello, everyone. Jason here. Today's guest is Nathaniel Stinnett the founder and executive director of the Environmental Voter Project. The Environmental Voter Project is a nonprofit that has identified a pool of over 10 million people here in the U.S. eligible to vote who have climate as their number one or number two issue that don't vote. And so their reason for being is to get more of those people out to the polls. In this episode, we cover a number of topics, including Nathaniel's background and experience in law, working in political campaigns, and ultimately in founding the Environmental Voter Project. We dug deep into the Environmental Voter Project and how it works, how it started, the work that they do, where they are in the trajectory, and where they're going next. And we also talked about the importance of voting, both for the obvious benefits of helping select the candidate for office that aligns with your values and ideals, but also the not so obvious benefit of showing up in the demographics as an active voter who cares about X policies, which then influences where politicians spend their time. I found Nathaniel to be quite an energetic guest as well as a thoughtful one, and I learned a lot from this episode. I hope that you do as well. So without further ado, here's Nathaniel. Nathaniel Stinnett, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jason. I'm psyched to be here. Psyched to have you. I think this is a different kind of episode from the ones we've had prior. I know when you and I met a few months ago, or maybe it was a couple months ago, I was surprised that something like Environmental Voter Project existed and and was really interested in the model. So so hopefully our our listeners will have the same reaction that I did. Thank you. I hope they do too. I think we're doing some unique and impactful work. Let's hope they're as excited about it as you are. What is Environmental Voter Project? Maybe we'll start there. Awesome. So we are a nonpartisan nonprofit that really just does two things. We identify environmentalists who aren't voting, and then we try to turn them into more consistent voters. And the reason we do that is, believe it or not, environmentalists are pretty crappy voters. We have identified over 10 million already registered to vote environmentalists who didn't vote in the 2016 presidential election. Over 10 million of them. They're already registered and they deeply care about environmental issues, but they stayed home on election day. And so what we do at the Environmental Voter Project is we don't endorse candidates. We don't try to persuade people to care more about the environment. We don't try to lobby for particular policies. We're really just in the, in the behavior changing business, not the mind changing business. We go after these people who are already with us, but they're not voting and we turn them into better voters. How many millions did you say? 10.1 million. Uh-huh. And how do you know this? So the first important thing to understand, and this is important to understand, not just for getting a better idea of who we are at the Environmental Voter Project. But this is probably one of the most important things to understand just if you care about policymaking and politics. And that is whether you vote or not is public record. It's public record. Who you vote for is secret. No one can ever find out who you vote for. But whether you vote or not is public record. 
And not only is it public record, but it's the lifeblood of all policymaking and all political campaigns. Because surprise, surprise, politicians don't care about what non-voters think. They only care about what voters think. So they look at public voter files, figure out who votes regularly, and only pay attention to those voters. Now, to get more to the, the gist of the question that you asked, how do we find the environmentalists who aren't voting? Well, that's a little bit more complicated than just looking at public voter files. What we do is we survey tens of thousands of people per state, simply asking them what issues they care about most. Then we isolate the ones who say they really deeply care about environmental issues. And we use that information and other data we have about them to build predictive models. So we work with a lot of data scientists. We end up assigning a score to every single person in a state telling us how likely they are to list climate and other environmental issues as one of their top two priorities. And it's a pretty long and convoluted process, but I think the best way to think about it is it's very similar to what insurance companies do. If you apply for life insurance, the first thing they do is they say, okay, well, how much do you exercise? What do you eat? How much do you drink? How much do you smoke? Do you like to jump out of airplanes? Like they find out all this information about you and then they build a profile for you that lets them know, not to be morbid, but like lets them know how long you're going to live. And if they're wrong, even by a little bit, they lose billions of dollars, billions of dollars. Well, we do the same thing. And we try to collect all this data and figure out who cares deeply about environmental issues. And we also build a profile of every single person on a state voter file that tells us how likely they are to deeply care about climate change. And then we only look at the ones who aren't voting. We only care about the ones who aren't voting. And that's how we identify our targets at the Environmental Voter Project. But it's also how we're able to come up with numbers like this and say, oh, wow, look, there are 10.1 million people in the United States who are already registered to vote, who care so deeply about the environment that it's one of their top two priorities. And they didn't even show up during the presidential election. Almost 16 million of them didn't vote in the 2014 midterms. We don't have the full data set from 2018 yet because a few states are still updating their voter files. But I mean, Jason, we're talking about huge numbers of people here, people who don't need their minds changed about anything. They're already with us. These are dyed in the wool super environmentalists. You shake them awake at night and they scream climate change. They're just not voting. So how did you come across this insight? So for about a decade, I worked in law and politics. So I went to law school here in Boston at Boston College. And while I was there, I worked a little bit for the Democratic National Committee and then started working for a lot of political campaigns while I was at my law firm. And I was always deeply frustrated by something that you, you might be aware of. And that is when you poll voters for any election, it could be a Boston City Council race or president of the United States or governor of Texas, and you ask them what issues they care about most climate change is almost always near the bottom. Now that's starting to change a little bit in the Democratic presidential primary, and I'd love to talk about that if you're interested. But by and large, no matter what race you look at, if you poll the people who are likely to vote in that race and ask them what issues they care about, climate change is nowhere. Any insight historically into why that has been? No, I wish I had a good answer for that because you ask a really good question. The, the truth is, it's really easy to measure how people feel about something. What's really hard with any scientific rigor 
is to figure out why they feel that way or why they don't care about something. Really, the only thing you can do, the only thing any social scientist can do in that situation is ask them, is ask people, why don't you care about this? Or why do you care about this? And you know what happens? They lie their pants off. To you or to themselves? That's a good question. We don't know. But what we do know is well, that they will often- We just started this podcast and I've asked two good questions according <laughs> right. to Nathaniel. That's awesome. I like to be struck. So, so that, this is good. When, when people yes. say- <laughs> When people say good question, it just butters me right up. Well, there you go. There you go. That'll be my automatic response now. It's very important to be able to tell the difference between excuses that people give and actual causes for how they act. And what we know is when you poll people and ask them why you don't vote, why don't you vote, or why do you care about this and why do you not care about that? they overwhelmingly adhere to what they think the important societal norm is. So that was like really academic jargon. So let me put it in a different way. What they will, how they will often answer is the way that they think you want them to answer. So if you ask me, for instance, why don't you care about climate change? I am really likely to give you the answer that I think you want to hear. Or why don't you vote? I will probably give you the answer that I think is most societally acceptable. Like, oh, well, I didn't know enough about the candidates, or I didn't know there was an election, or I was really busy that day. And what we've realized by looking at a lot of this polling data and then a lot of resulting data on who actually votes is that people usually lie about their reasons for not taking a particular action. And so it's a really sort of dark, deep black box to dive into to try to figure out why people do or do not feel a certain way or why they do or do not take a particular set of actions. It's really hard. And we don't even know that at the Environmental Voter Project. But I guess pausing for a minute. So before we get into everybody else, yeah. let's talk about you. Because I'm curious, when, when you came across this insight, yeah. it sounds like it bothered you. So oh, yeah. why is that? So it, it bothered the crap out of me. Like because, why are you different? Yeah. Yeah. So And whatever you tell me is going to be to the thing you, that you think I want you to hear. Right? <laughs> it might so. be. Or the thing I, I, I think you, your listeners want to hear. That's all right. <laughs> so, you know, Jason, I, I never had like a blinding light on the road to Damascus where all of a sudden I realized like, oh, I deeply care about climate change. The truth is I've, I've always cared about environmental issues. And I wish I had like a compelling like Genesis story for you. And I don't. I think part of it- I don't either, by the way. I care. I mean, obviously I care. And someone asked me that yesterday. I, I It's like, I don't know why. I, I didn't have any like transformative moment or something. Yeah. I, I mean, if, if someone's about to punch you in the face, you you move out of the way. And I feel like like the universe is about to punch us in the face. And I want to like move out of the way and solve this problem. I think part of my reaction to the climate crisis isn't through some like emotional or childhood love of the environment. I, I think I just- at some point slowly became to realize like, holy moly, like this is everything. So I guess if, if we look backwards, you were running political campaigns, yeah. right? And then you were, was your awakening to climate change just slowly building during that time? It was even around starting about 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, even when I was in law school, I deeply, deeply cared about environmental issues. But the truth is, Jason, I, I never felt like there was a solution to this political problem that I just posed to you. I was running these campaigns. I deeply cared about climate change, but I saw how few voters cared about climate change. 
And I didn't think there was a solution to the problem. I thought, you know what? Talking about these issues is not how you win campaigns. And so it would be malpractice for me to advise my clients or the candidates I was working with to talk about this issue that voters don't give a heck about. And so we didn't talk about it. And then sometimes those candidates would win. I checked the explicit box on this podcast, by the way. So, so if I you can, ever do feel inclined, you can say whatever you want. That's good to know. It's probably the first time I've that said away in like two years. So it's good. <laughs> Sounded weird coming off the lips. Uh, and then even when politicians win elections, right? Even when the so-called right people win, then they have a very limited amount of political capital to spend. And what was I going to do then? Let's say I just got you elected governor of Massachusetts. Is it good for me to say, hey, Jason, let's spend all of your political capital on this thing that we know voters really don't care about? That's a really hard thing to do. So I was I was deeply frustrated by this. And were you working at the time with candidates who cared about yeah, this issue? I was. I Because I was in this great position working at a law firm where I could, during my free time, be either a senior strategist or a campaign manager. And so I wasn't working for money. This was in my free time. And so I could pick and choose the candidates I wanted. And I always picked the ones who I thought would be amazing on environmental issues and would deeply care about this stuff. But when you're trying to win an election, your goal is not the long-term health of the environmental movement. Your goal is to get 50% plus one of the market share on a Tuesday in November, period. You got to win. You got to win if you want to do anything. The problem is you're in this like weird catch-22 where in order to win, you have to talk about stuff that voters care about. And then as soon as you win, you're worried about the next election. And so you can't spend your precious political capital on something that voters don't care about. And I was just in this, this never-ending cycle of frustration that I, I really cared about climate change. I saw how important it was to have political leadership on this issue. But we couldn't sort of break out of this box that, as I mentioned before, whether you vote or not is public record. So at any given moment on any of our campaigns, we knew who was likely to vote and who wasn't likely to vote. And we knew that those likely voters didn't care about this important issue. Okay, so you're in this cycle and you feel trapped and you're getting more and more frustrated. So what did you do? Well, I had just finished running a mayoral campaign here in Boston and was taking some time off before what I assumed would be going back to, to working at my law firm. And I was taking time off because our first child was, was being born. When was this? This was the very end of 2013, beginning of 2014. Okay. And purely by chance, I saw some polling data that totally blew my mind. And this was some polling data that was looking at voters' policy preferences going into the 2014 midterm elections. And what this interesting set of polling data showed was it broke down the issues that people care about into two groups. The first was how do all American adults feel about this long list of political issues? And then the second group was, how do people who are likely to vote in the 2014 midterms care about these issues? And I saw that there was a pretty significant difference. When you looked at the people who were actually likely to vote in the 2014 midterm elections, climate change was, I don't think it was at the bottom, but I think it was 18th out of 19 on their priorities of issues. It was almost the least important issue to people who were going to vote in that election. But then when you looked at all American adults, it isn't like climate change was at the top. It was nowhere near the top, but it was closer to the middle. And I thought, huh, I wonder if the environmental movement doesn't have a persuasion problem as much as we have a turnout problem. 
And I started looking at more and more polls, and there aren't many of them that break out populations like that, where they separate a measurement of how voters feel as opposed to all American adults. But I kept on looking at more and more polling data and more predictive modeling data and other opinion data, and I kept on seeing similar results. And the more I looked at this, the more I began to think, well, this is really interesting. Because even before Trump, we lived in a time when it was really hard to change people's opinions. It's really hard to change people's minds. It's easier to change their behavior. I will never claim it's easy. It is not easy to change people's behavior, but it's easier and it's cheaper. And as I started looking at this data, I started to realize, wow, if we don't have an opinion-changing problem, if we don't have a mind-changing problem, but rather just a behavioral problem, a turnout problem, well, that's solvable. That's a really efficient solution to a lot of the political problems that the climate movement is dealing with. And I won't claim like it was an easy decision for me to make to start my own nonprofit. It wasn't. I am like the world's most reluctant entrepreneur. I've never like dreamt of starting my own thing. But through my time working in campaigns, I had some of the data analytics expertise and some of the behavioral science expertise and certainly some of the, the political campaign expertise that made me realize I had a I had recognized a unique solution to an important problem, and I had the skill set to bring that solution to fruition. So it didn't happen immediately. It took about a year of me meeting with tons of people, having them sort of fact check all my data, talk to me about whether it was, there was a place for an organization like the Environmental Voter Project. My wife was an enormous part of this decision. She really encouraged me to do this and really helped making introductions to people in the space and things like that. But Eventually, we ended up launching at the very end of 2015, and we've been killing it ever since. We talked about the 10 million people that, so it's 10 million that have environment as their number one cause that don't vote. Is that, did I get that right? So we identified 10.1 million who list climate change or some other environmental issue as their number one or number two priority, uh -huh. yet they did not vote in the 2016 presidential election. What percentage of people that fit that criteria do you think that 10.1 million represents? There are 20.1 million registered voters who list climate or the environment as one of their top two priorities. Got it. So about 50% of them vote. 50% of them vote in presidential elections. Obviously, every election is different. So presidential elections are like the high watermark of voter turnout. If you look at midterms, midterm elections, far fewer of them vote. If you look at local elections, almost none of them vote, and we shouldn't poo-poo local elections. Mayors can save the planet with tweaks to zoning codes and building codes and parking regulations and traffic laws. And so whatever election we look at, whether it be presidential or midterm or local races, we see that environmentalists lag overall turnout. We are worse voters than the overall population, and we're looking to change that. So if there's about, what, 300 million people in the United States? A little more? Yep. A little bit more than that. Yep. Yeah. And and so we're talking about, I guess, a total addressable market of 10.1 million out of that, 300 million. I mean, 10 million is a big number, but as a percentage, it's a small number. So why does it matter? It matters because the denominator is not what you think it is. The denominator isn't 300 million plus. We've got about 255 million people in the United States who are of voting age, 255 million. But as you may know, just because you are of age doesn't mean you're allowed to vote. 
Many states don't let anybody who's ever been convicted of a felony ever vote, even if they want to. So we have about 235 million who are eligible to vote. We have about 208 million. Oh, that's a lot of felony convictions. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that, that's, a, that's an issue for another podcast, but there's a reason for that. We have about 208 million who are registered to vote. Do all registered voters show up for every election? No way. We had 139 million, I think, 138 million show up for the 2016 presidential election. 138 million. What is 10 million out of 138 million? Well, that's a big effing deal now. For the midterm elections, it was 114 million people voted. And last November's midterm elections were the highest turnout midterms since 1914, right after World War I broke out. And so when we look at these numbers, 114 million people voting in the highest midterm election in modern American history, well, that's a much smaller denominator than 300 million Americans. And if you can add even 1 million, 1.5 million environmentalists to that group, well, you start really changing the dynamics of the marketplace. Because as I said before, politicians don't care about the non-voters, Jason. They care about the voters. And whether you vote or not is public record. It's public record. So why on earth would any politician care what issue you care about if there is a public record telling them that you never vote? Politicians only pay attention to the voters, and that's why we're trying to, to shove as many environmentalists into that little niche marketplace as possible, because those are the only people who are first-class citizens. So is the reason that this helps because when people vote, then it shows up in the demographic data of the people that vote, or is the reason that this helps who the people actually vote for that, that show up at the polls? So a little bit of both. I am never going to claim that who wins an election is unimportant. Obviously, it's important to elect the right people. So obviously, that is part of what's going on here. But the first part of what you said is even more important because- I, I never would have thought that. I mean, finish your thought, but that, that's surprising to me. Yeah. I mean, despite the really politically polarized and partisan environment that we live in, Jason, there's still one thing that every Democrat and every Republican has in common, and that is they want to win elections. Politicians want to win elections. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you want to win elections. And so what that means is you go where the votes are. And I know that sounds cynical, but it's just arithmetic. It's, it's like how democracies work. Either you get enough votes or you don't get to be a politician anymore. And so what politicians do is they religiously look at these voter files. Whenever they're updated after an election, they see who voted and who didn't vote. And of course, they only poll the voters to see what issues they care about. And that is how policy is made. I mean, as you and I are sitting in this room right now, my guess is there are probably 100 polls in the field all around the country. But they are not polling, but these politicians, they're not polling all Americans. They're not polling all eligible voters. They're not even polling all registered voters. They are looking at public voter files to see who bothers to show up. And they are only polling those people, which makes sense. I mean, we don't expect Starbucks to care about people who don't drink coffee, right? So is a, is a political strategy not to try to speak to certain people who haven't been showing up to get those people to turn out? 
Well, that's obviously the strategy we're taking at the Environmental Voter Project. But we have the luxury of having a longer horizon for what we're trying to accomplish. What we're trying to do at the Environmental Voter Project is over three, four years in a particular state, pretty dramatically change the way the electorate works. Because in any given year, the average American has three or four, sometimes five elections between primaries and generals and local, state, and federal. But no, I would say that's not a good strategy to take. You would never counsel a candidate that you were working on behalf of to, to take that approach. No, I mean, let's say I'm running your campaign for governor, Jason. How would you feel if on election day I come to you and I say, Jason, got to admit something. I spent all of our money talking to people I'm pretty sure aren't going to show up today. You'd be pretty angry. And for very good reason, because when I'm running your campaign for governor, our goal is not the long-term health of the environmental movement or the long-term health of the democracy to get as many people to vote as possible. We just have one goal, and that's getting 50% plus one of the market share on a Tuesday in November, period. Your goal is to win. And so what that means is the most efficient way to reach that point, the most efficient way to get one more vote than all of your opponents is almost always to talk to the people who have a history of showing up on election day. It's not the most efficient play over the long term or the medium term, but you don't so care you can about the take long that term. view in the long term because you're not focused election to election. That's right. We are not in the election winning business. We're in the electorate changing business. And can you talk a little bit about techniques? So how, how do you actually get these people to turn out? Yeah. So here's the really interesting thing. Once you're confident in the accuracy of your identification techniques, and we're very confident that our predictive models are really, really accurate. And it's not because we're particularly good or bad at this. It's just sort of where the technology is. The various companies, both in the political and nonprofit sector, but also in the private sector, who are building predictive models are really accurate. And is it the same predictive models that you would use and the candidates that are focused election to election use? Yes. Now, they build predictive models to identify different kinds of people. So if I were running your campaign, I would build a predictive model helping us identify people who are likely to support you, not people who are likely to list climate change as one of their top priorities. Is it the same vendors that are providing these? Yes. Similar vendors. Got similar it. vendors and absolutely similar techniques. And who are, are some of the leading ones, just in case any listeners out there want to learn more about the technology? Yeah. So we use Clarity Campaign Labs. They are a great national vendor that works with a lot of progressive and nonprofits and organizations. Mm -hmm. But Blue Labs is another one that's very, very good. But there are about four or five very, very prominent predictive modeling shops out there. Okay. So you get the predictive models and they help you identify who to go after. And then how do you go after them? Yeah. So, so this is the really special part because if you're confident in the accuracy of your identification, well, then you have the luxury to be completely agnostic in your messaging. I mean, I could talk about chocolate chip cookies if it was the best way to get you to vote because we already know that you're a super environmentalist. And so what we have found, and not just us, but other people who work with behavioral science have found that the best way to get people to take a particular action, whether it be exercising more often or vaccinating their children or starting to vote, is not to try to rationally convince them of the value of the action, but rather it's to appeal to things like peer pressure and social pressure and essentially try to figure out what societal norms they buy into and take advantage of that. 
So I'll give you some examples. I was just going to ask. Yeah. You read my mind. Oh, there you go. You missed an opportunity for me to say that's another good question, Jason. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> so an example is we will send text messages to people and we'll say, hey, Jason, did you know last time there was an election, 73 people on your block of Main Street turned out to vote? Or we'll send them a letter that includes a copy of their personal voting history. We'll say, and yeah, it's a little, you know, we turn the screws. We, we'll say, Jason, just want to remind you who you vote for is secret, but whether you vote or not is public record. Here's a copy of shame. your- Shame, We I shame like them, yes. Yeah. But what we have found out is that even people who don't vote, by and large, they buy into the societal norm that voting is a good thing. And so even if you just hint at the idea that whether you vote or not is public record, even if you hint at the idea that one of their neighbors might be able to look up their public voting record, it sends turnout through the roof. Random question, but but the the half of the people that, that list environment as one or two that don't show up, is that ratio pretty consistent across issues or are environmental voters particularly bad at turning out? I know the answer to the second part of the question, but not the first. So yes, I do know that environmental voters are particularly bad at voting because when we compare turnout of environmentalists to the average turnout of registered voters, we are well below average. Now, how does that compare to other issue constituency groups? I don't know because I care about climate and environmental issues and we haven't put the money in to researching how other issue constituency groups turn out. But what I do know is that we're way below average. And that's a really, really important thing to solve because of what we were talking about earlier. Politicians go where the votes are. You get more environmentalists to vote, politicians will follow. They will follow. But there's no insight into why that is. No. And it's not for lack of trying. We have done studies where we've tried to determine why environmentalists aren't voting. But every time we do one of these studies, the data we get back really is, is either confusing or doesn't lead to obvious answers. And so I'll, I'll give you some examples. We did a, a survey, and this wasn't a huge, huge survey. And so we, we, didn't, we didn't publish it because it, wasn't, it only had about 600 or 700 people in it. But it, it did give some really interesting feedback to us. We had a survey where half the population were environmentalists who never voted. They'd been registered for at least five years, but had never voted once. The other half were environmentalists who had literally never skipped an election. These people vote in like library trustee elections. And what we did was we asked both groups of people the same questions about civic engagement. And we learned really two, real, two really interesting things. The first one was both groups answered every question the exact same way. So we asked the non-voters, do you think that politicians care about the issues you care about? They said, no, they don't care. We asked the people who always vote, and they say, no, they don't care. We asked the people who always vote, do you think it's important to vote in every election? They said, oh, yeah, it's really important to vote in every election. We asked the non-voters, and they said, oh, yeah, it's really important to vote in every election. We asked the non-voters, do you think your vote even makes a difference? They said, no, it doesn't make a difference. We asked the super voters, and they said, no, our vote doesn't make a difference. And so we, we kept on getting this data back that told us, we know the excuses that people give for not voting, but good voters feel the same way. So how can we draw a causal connection? I can tell you what non-voters say are the reasons for not voting, Jason. I can tell you what they are. 
It's, oh, I'm too busy, or politicians don't care about the issues I care about, or my vote doesn't make a difference. The problem is good voters feel the same way. So how can we say that there's any causal connection there? So you have interesting insight, but not conclusive at this point. That's right. But here's the second thing we learned. And this is something that we do have conclusive data on. Because once we saw this in that survey, we then beefed it up and did a survey of 10,000 people with real statistical significance across the board. We asked one more question in that survey where we asked an open-ended question. We didn't give people options to choose from. And we said, when you don't vote, what are your reasons for not voting? And some people said this, some people said that, some people said another thing. But the overwhelming majority of them, something like 78%, said, oh, I always vote. Now, Jason, as a reminder, whether you vote or not is public record. We knew for a fact while we were surveying these people, they had never voted before in their entire lives. They were lying their pants off to us. And we thought they might lie their pants off to us. So we actually had a backup question for these non-voters who said, I vote all the time. We said, okay, maybe you vote sometime, but when you don't vote, what are your reasons for not voting? You were really trying to, to figure out why aren't these people voting? A smaller majority, but still a majority, still 52% of the respondents swore up and down they voted all the time. When we saw that data, that's when we did this really, really big survey of, it wasn't 10,000, I think about 9,000 people, where we asked them how often they voted. We gave them lots of responses, you know, every election, only presidentials, every two years, lots of different responses. And what we realized, and this is on our website, you can see the report from this survey at environmentalvoter.org. We realized that 78% of people lie and over-report how often they vote. Now, what does that tell us? Environmentalists. So they have an outsized propensity to lie. That's what you're saying. <laughs> no, this survey wasn't just environmentalists. <laughs> it was everybody. But you're right. Environmentalists do lie too. What does this tell us? It does not tell us why environmentalists aren't voting. But what it does tell us, it does give us insight into how to get people to vote. And this gets back to what I was telling you before about this societal norm that even non-voters want to be viewed as good voters. What we've realized is that voters, whether they be environmentalists or not, will lie their pants off even to a stranger over the phone and swear up and down that they vote all the time. Why? Because they still buy into that societal norm that being a voter is a good thing. They buy into it so much that they even want strangers to think they're a good voter. Uh, so it's just reminding them that they care about that and that's what motivates them to get out there? Not just reminding them that they care about that, but using a little bit of social pressure. Literally, like pushing in their face the fact that we have a copy of their personal voting history. And by the way, pal, it's public record. And we might follow up with you after the election to find out how everything went. So how long have you been out in the field doing this stuff? And what kinds of results have you found so far with your efforts? So we launched at the end of 2015. So we've been doing this for a little bit more than three years, about three and a half years. Mm -hmm. We ran a year-long pilot program in Massachusetts. And off the strength of our, our results there, we expanded into five more states. So we're currently in Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Massachusetts, Nevada, and Pennsylvania. And the results that we get, it varies from election to election because it's harder to turn people out in high turnout races like a presidential election, and it's easier to turn them out in local races. But I'll give you an example from last year's midterms because midterm elections are kind of like a mid-watermark of turnout. We targeted 2.2 million unlikely to vote environmentalists. We increased turnout 
among that 2.2 million by 2.7 percentage points. And what that means is in our randomized control trials, we're able to prove that we were solely responsible for adding 59,000 brand new environmental voters to the electorate last fall in just six states. And if you don't think 2.7 percentage points is a big deal, talk to Hillary Clinton. I mean, those numbers are everything in this game. They are everything. And I'm not going to claim that we are a magic election-winning organization. We're not. Talking to crappy voters is not an efficient way to win one election. But if you start having one, two, three percentage point jumps election after election, four, five, six times a year, well, man, after like three or four years in one of these states, we can pretty dramatically change what the electorate looks like. And when you do that, I don't care if you're running for president or governor or dog catcher. When you put a poll in the field asking likely voters what issues they care about, climate change is going to start appearing at the top, not at the bottom. And when that happens, politicians will trip over themselves to lead on these issues because politicians want to win elections. That's it. And at the very heart of it, we're ultimately like a pretty cynical organization. All our theory of change relies upon is politicians wanting to win. As long as politicians want to win elections, then we're going to get them to lead on climate change by making more climate voters. And so that's our, that's our theory of change. It's like if you drive 5,000 coffee drinkers to the door of Starbucks, believe me, they'll make more coffee. They will absolutely make more coffee. How did you pick the states that you started in? So we need a big denominator. Our, our number one most important criteria is we go into states that have lots of non-voting and seldom voting environmentalists. Because 2.7% of 1,000 targets isn't going to do anything, right? And there are a lot of states that actually don't have many non-voting environmentalists. A lot of important political states. A lot of people come up to us and say, oh man, I really wish you were working in Minnesota, which by any objective measure is a very important state for climate policymaking at the local, state, and federal level. Well, unfortunately, there aren't that many non-voting environmentalists there. Even if we killed it, we wouldn't have an impact on policymaking. I wonder if, if studying what it is about the environmentalists there that's different than the environmentalists in non-participating states can give insight into how to get the other states more active. Well, now I get to say it again, Jason. That's a very good question. That's a very good point. We're probably going to do some research into that, comparing states that have very high voter turnout rates, so Minnesota, Maine, Colorado, these are all states where voter turnout is pretty high across the board. But what's interesting is in Colorado and Maine, environmental turnout is not that good. But in Minnesota, environmental turnout is really good. And so, yeah, we are trying to figure that out. But I don't want to make it seem like we are obsessed with the why not question. We're not as obsessed with the why aren't these people voting question as we are with the how can we get them to vote question, because they're not always related. Sometimes you just need to embrace the black box and just understand that we may never figure out why these people aren't voting as long as we can figure out impactful ways to get them to vote. And we are doing the latter. We definitely are doing the latter. We run, we'll probably run over 100 randomized control trials this year just testing which messages work best with which you know demographic groups to get which micro populations to vote more often 
And it's not our primary purpose, but a secondary aspect of our work is we're really like this this full-time field laboratory for figuring out the best way to get environmentalists to take this one action, this one behavior change, and that is to vote more often. And so is the goal of the organization to get those 10.1 million to vote? Yes. Although I I would say I'm not operating under the the delusion that we're going to be able to turn every non-voting environmentalist into a voter. I would say the short-term goal is to get environmentalists to vote as often as everybody else. The longer-term goal is to get them to be better voters. I want environmentalists to vote as often as NRA members do. That's where a lot of the NRA's power comes from. It doesn't come from their checkbook. It comes from the fact that if you deeply care about gun rights right now, you vote like it's your job. And I want climate voters to do the same thing. And then our ultimate goal, I mean, our ultimate goal is to put ourselves out of business. I mean, our ultimate goal is to, in a particular state, and we do look at it from a state-by-state basis, in a particular state, if we get to that, that, that diminishing level of returns where we don't think we're able to efficiently make new voters and we've sort of reached that sort of leveling off, well, we'll stop working in that state. The putting yourself out of business thing, is that, is that something that you take seriously or are you saying that half in jest? No, I really take it seriously. I mean, I, How many years then? I mean, the honest answer is I don't know because we haven't done it yet. <laughs> we don't know where that leveling off happens. I am confident that there will be a diminishing point of returns, probably some sort of asymptotic leveling off where it gets increasingly expensive to convert non-voters into voters. I'm sure it will happen, but I don't know when it will happen because we haven't reached that point yet. So what's next for the organization? You've, you've run these trials in, in a handful of states. You've put up some good results. So where are you going next and what's your biggest priority? First off, we're staying in our current six states, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Massachusetts, Nevada, and Pennsylvania. And I can't stress this enough. We don't just care about the big, sexy elections every two years. Every election, even if it's for a library trustee, is an opportunity to change people's behavior. So every election is a way to turn non-voters into voters. But we're also going to be expanding into new states. I wish I could tell you what those like new states are. We haven't made that decision yet, but probably in the next month or two, we will be announcing which new states we will be expanding into. But even when we expand into those states, it's not because we have an eye on the 2020 presidential election or any other election. It's because we feel that those states offer a great opportunity for us to hit people over and over again. And over the course of two, three, four, maybe five years, dramatically change the electorate in those states such that on a local, state, and federal level, nobody can run for anything without talking about these issues. Uh huh. And one, one point I forgot to bring up is you mentioned to me before we started recording that you are intentionally nonpartisan in your approach. So I guess that, that would mean then by definition that if there were a candidate that were much stronger on environment than other candidates, that you have no horse in the race and aren't thinking election to election. Is that, is that correct? And can you expand upon your thinking there? That's exactly correct. Absolutely correct. We never support candidates, but also it, part of the reason why we take this approach, well, there are a few reasons why we take this approach. One is just for legal reasons. If we want to be the type of nonprofit that we are, we can't support particular what, candidates. What type is that? We're a 501c4 nonprofit. How's that different than a C3? It's different in that people who donate to us can't get a tax write-off. I know that's a bummer, but 
because of the type of work that we're doing, identifying people who care deeply about a particular issue and then mobilizing them to vote, that's considered a form of advocacy. And so because of that, we have to file as a 501c4 nonprofit. Now, the other reason we're nonpartisan is that we truly believe that politicians will go where the votes are. And I know I've said that before, but it's so important to, to truly internalize and understand. And I don't just mean this as if we get enough environmentalists to vote, then Republicans will start caring about climate change. No, everybody, even the most progressive Democratic Democrat in the world is falling down on the job, Jason. I mean, can anyone with a straight face claim that any political leader, any political leader has put forth the climate policy solutions that we need to get ourselves out of this crisis? No way. At least no one with any power. And so the truth is, we have all of these people, some of whom mean very, very well, who are stuck in a marketplace with no demand for environmental leadership, none whatsoever. It's changing a little bit. It's changing, for instance, in the Democratic presidential primary. So voters who are likely to vote in the Democratic presidential primary are starting to demand climate leadership. And so you're seeing a lot of candidates supply it. But the reason we take this nonpartisan approach is that we truly believe that left, right, or center, Democrat or Republican, everybody has to cobble together 50% plus one of the vote. And so if you start getting more environmentalists to vote, it will get everybody, whether they're Republican or Democrat, to be more likely to lead on these issues. And so it's not that we're trying to be middle of the road or that we're trying to be nonpartisan. It's that we understand that even if you're super liberal, winning an election isn't enough. I'm sorry, it's just not. Electing the right people is not enough because then they need to decide, well, what am I going to spend my political capital on? And no one's going to spend their political capital on something that voters don't care about. They're just not. They're just not. No one's going to supply a product for which there's no demand in the marketplace. We need to make that demand. And in, in terms of funding, since it sounds like you're 100% funded by donors, what does that base look like? Is there a, I mean, you, you seem to have a really good grasp on what the environmental voter base looks like. So do you have a similar grasp on what your donor base looks like? And if so, I'd love to hear any detail. Yeah. So we, so as I mentioned, we launched in our pilot in 2015, 2016. Then in 2017, sort of our first full year post-pilot, we raised 470000 Last year in 2018, we raised $1.5 This year, we are raising money at about twice the speed as we did last year. I'm not going to pretend like that is going to project out to $3 million. What the hell do I know? Like, this is our third year. <laughs> but it's, it's going pretty well. As far as who do those, what do those donors look like, we had 1,500 donors last year, or maybe 1,600 donors. Mm -hmm. I would say, I think 1,300 of them gave us less than $500. Wow. So, you know, like we're not- Big long tail. Yeah. I mean, we're not Bernie Sanders. It isn't like we've got a billion donors out there giving us two bucks or something like that. But but we have- Maybe that's your opportunity, Nathaniel. That's right. Maybe <laughs> it is. That's a good point. So we've got, I'd say probably 30 or 40 donors who give 10,000, 25,000, 50,000. We've got three donors who are in the six-figure range. But the overwhelming majority of our donor base 
is people are giving 500, 50, 1,000, 2,000, things like that. As far as what do they look like? You know, not, not what I expected. Probably just because of where I came from, I had this sort of ex experiential bias where I assumed, well, the people who are gonna be most interested in this are gonna be the people who are most interested in political campaigns. And yeah, some of them do donate to us, but oddly enough, the, our, most of our money isn't coming from the habitual political donor. It's coming from people in Silicon Valley. It's coming from the clean tech crowd in Cambridge and Kendall Square. It's coming from people who are more interested in the sort of outside the box creative approach that we're taking rather than the people who just are looking to clink champagne on election night because a particular candidate won, which to be honest, we don't offer. No one can click champagne on election night and say, hey, the Environmental Voter Project won. We are like the data nerds of the environmental movement. That is not us. I know you're nonpartisan by nature, but if you looked at the donor base, is it, is it heavily skewed to one political party or another? Yeah, yeah. Our donors are largely progressive, but we also have some never Trump Republicans who deeply care about environmental issues, and they... They understand that if we do our job well, it won't just help progressives lead on climate change, it will help moderates and conservatives lead on climate change. I mean, Sheldon Whitehouse, the US Senator from Rhode Island is fond of saying, and I'm not like sharing any secrets, he says this like every week if you ask him, he's fond of saying that there are eight Republican members of the US Senate who would not just vote to support a price on carbon, they would lead on it. They would lead on it if they thought that their electorate would support them. There are people, there are right of center leaders who will lead on climate policy if there is voter demand for it. Now, again, our, our purpose is not to be a sort of middle of the road organization. Our purpose is to hold everybody's feet to the fire. Our purpose is to make it impossible for anybody to run for anything without paying attention to these issues kind of like the NRA does in a lot of places for people on gun issues. But yeah, we, we do have some, some moderate and even right of center supporters. Not many, but we do have some. And for anyone that wants to learn more about the Environmental Voter Project, where should they go? They should go to environmentalvoter.org. And there are a few ways to get involved. The first and easiest of which is if you go to our website, environmentalvoter.org, you can sign our environmental voter pledge. It's the simple pledge, and you just promise to vote in every election and always prioritize environmental issues. If you sign that pledge on our website, we will send you free election reminders before every single election. And it doesn't matter whether you're in one of our six states or not. You could live in Boise, Idaho. You sign this pledge on environmentalvoter.org, and we will let you know every single time you have an election, even if it's a primary for library trustee in the middle of the summer. Second thing you can do at our website, sign up to volunteer. At any given moment, we have, I mean, we now have, I think, 2,300 volunteers around the country who are texting, calling, and canvassing these non-voting environmentalists for us. We would love to bring you into the fold. It's a really fun way to make a difference in your free time. And then the third thing is, obviously, we're funded by donors, over 1,600 of them. And every little bit counts. Turnout is relatively cheap. Changing minds and changing opinions, that's the hard and expensive stuff. Changing behavior, I won't claim it's cheap or easy, but it's cheaper. 
and easier. And a little bit of money goes a long way with us. So we would obviously love people's financial support as well. Anything I didn't ask you that I should have or any other parting words for listeners? I would just say that at a very basic level, I think most people are cynical about politics. They think politicians will do whatever it takes to get elected. And they're right. They're totally right. And so take your cynicism one step further, for God's sake. If politicians will do whatever it takes to get elected, then how dare you miss any election? I mean, not only does your vote matter, it's maybe the only thing that matters. In fact, because whether you vote or not is public record, Jason, even if you go to vote and you write your dog's name in on the ballot, it still impacts policymaking. Because simply by being a voter, you become a first-class citizen. Politicians don't care what non-voters think. And they have, I mean, within 20 seconds of opening, their, opening up their laptop, they have a list of all the non-voters and all of the voters. So you've got to be a voter. It's one of the easiest, most impactful things anybody who cares about climate change can do. You have got to vote in every single election because those are the people who drive policymaking. Jason, I mean, if, if we woke up tomorrow and the front page of the New York Times, the front page of the New York Times said, likely voters in the upcoming presidential election list climate change as their number two priority. I would claim that we will have solved the climate crisis. Yeah. And one one thing that reminds me to just plug is a big aha for me in, in listening to this is for the people that say, oh, like I'm, you know, I'm in a blue district or I'm in a red district or it's going to be such a landslide. My vote doesn't matter. Actually, for the secondary benefit that it sounds like is even more important than who you vote for or as important, you should show up in every election because it makes a difference every time. That's exactly right. And also it. Climate policy solutions don't just come from the federal level. They come from the state and the local level too. I mean, little tweaks to zoning codes, little tweaks to the amount of concrete that goes into this building that we're sitting in can have dramatic impacts on the amount of greenhouse gas emissions. And so, yeah, the people whom you elect to your city council and your local mayor can have an enormous impact on climate policy. So yeah, every election matters, and you're right. It doesn't just matter because of whom you elect. It matters because by being a voter, you become a first-class citizen. Well, I think that's a powerful point to end on. So Nathaniel Stinnett, thank you for coming on the show. You've been a great guest. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on My Climate Journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.